1: Yeah. So the millionaire next door, when it came out, I was kind of in the process of figuring it all out, read it and basically said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to control my expenses. I'm going to live within my means and I'm going to be the millionaire next door.
0: Show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Barrage Kids and Money Podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're bringing you another best of MKM episode. This week, I'll be sharing a conversation I had in 2018 with John from ESI Money, where he reviews the steps he took to become a multi-millionaire. And now at that time, he had a net worth around three to four million bucks. I just checked his site for the end of the year last year, and now he's closer to six million. (laughs) So I think you'll appreciate the details John shares about his wealth building success in this interview. And hopefully you can grab some important takeaways on your family financial independence journey. All right, without further delay, let's jump into today's show. We have an excellent guest on the show today. John from ESI Money is here to talk to us about how we can earn save and invest our way to financial independence. John is a former marketing executive, a real estate investor, and now the owner of Rockstar Finance. If you don't know what Rockstar Finance is, check it out. You'll really, really like it. He's built up his net worth to the multi-million dollar level through the principles we're going to be talking about on this show today. He's also a family man. He's got two kids and he's been married to his wife for, I think, over 20 years. John, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but welcome to the show, John, how's it going? Hey, Annie, how are you doing? It's good I'm, to be here. I'm great. It's really great to have you here. ESI. So ESI stands for Earn. save Save, and
1: invest, right? You are right. Yes.
0: Excellent. Well, I thought that'd be kind of cool if we walked through some of those principles that you've been talking about for so long on your blog and inspiring people about earn, save and invest and help people to understand how you've reached financial independence and, and your status as a multimillionaire. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the earn side of things. Why is someone's career one of the most important tools in the wealth building box for that earn side of things?
1: There's really two reasons why it's one of the most important things. First of all, for, for the vast majority of people probably 95 percent of people your career is your biggest financial asset if you look over the lifespan of a 40 45 50 year career and add up what that is worth I mean it's worth millions of dollars right now most people don't think of it that way but it really is it just just add up the numbers so that's the first reason why the second reason why is if you take the right steps you can make those you know two or three million dollars dollars that your career's worth worth millions more by actively managing your career trying to grow it by being intentional about it growing it, instead of just kind of letting it happen to you so those two things you know career can be a big part of the earning equation for most people
0: could you give us a little bit of background on on your career path when you were working before you were retired or financially independent what did you do and then how did you build yourself up to increasing your your salary throughout those years
1: yeah, well, let me say, first of all, I learned what I'm going to share all kind of by, you know, school of hard knocks. So and it took me a long time to figure it out. So someone starting today would have a big advantage because they could put these principles into practice. Right away versus took me sometimes twenty years to learn them. I had got an undergraduate degree in business and economics, and then got an MBA and worked all the way through uh, the corporate field in marketing and kind of progressed my way up in the marketing field through with different companies and you know changing from company to company, job to job within companies. Then too, eventually became the president of a hundred million dollar company. I use the principles that I talk about on my on my uh, website. The main ones I have seven of them and we probably won't have time to go through all them, but the the first two are really the most important because if you get them right, you can get probably about 80% of the benefit of growing your career. The first one is listed as overperforming or doing a good job, people would call it. But there's there's a way of doing that that, that, that can pretty much guarantee your success. And it involves talking with your boss and finding out what he or she expects you to do. Generally, the terminology most companies use is expectations, or you meet expectations when you get your review. So what are those expectations? Get them down in writing, get them quantified, and then now you know exactly what they expect. Now do more than they expect. Because people who do more than what's expected get paid more than what average people get paid. And you do that over and over throughout your career. You overperform expectations. You're going to earn a lot of money in the lifetime of your career the second thing is you want to be likable which is that's kind of controversial to say a little bit but studies will show that people who are likable get promoted almost as much as people who overperform so it's just that's just the way it is people like to promote the people that they like so and and you don't have to be you know you don't have to be a backslapper, you don't have to be a good old boy or anything like that but if you simply treat other people like you want to be treated you know, think about the other person first, that'll go a long way to being likable and, I'll ha- and it will have a big impact on your career and your earnings.
0: Those are two really good points. One thing that you mentioned there is that you had gone to several different companies or, or almost 10 different companies right, throughout your career. At what point was it necessary for you to say, hey, I got to make a move in order for this to be worth it or for my income to increase?
1: Yeah, it was different in pretty much every situation. I mean, sometimes it would be, it would be simply because it wasn't challenging and I, and I, it wasn't necessarily a income thing, but it was more like I'm just not very challenged. I can do more. Sometimes it was, there was no room to progress up the organization because the two guys, you know, ahead of me owned, they were family, it was a family business and they owned the company and I wasn't going to pass them up. So it kind of depended. But I invested a lot of extra time and effort in early on in my career, and we moved a few times early on in my career until we got to the point where we had kids. And I wanted to, and I made the i made a, a choice at that point in time to not be as aggressive with my career because I wanted to trade. That for the time that I would have at home, hmm. so I found I found a job that still paid very well, but the annual increases weren't that high. But I was off work every day by 5 p.m. I didn't work weekends at all. I didn't travel very much. I was at every event that my kids had. I was the coach for the, you know my my son's basketball team and soccer teams. So that was a trade off that I thought was you know well worth the investment.
0: Outside of your day job, you talk about on your site, starting a side business can be a way to increase your income. If somebody's just getting started and they're working at a job and they like their job, but they're also looking for sort of another outlet, where's the best place to start if you want to try to you know, get into a side business?
1: Yeah, so I do recommend having a side hustle because it can really speed up your path to financial independence. Because if you have that, you don't have to save as much, right? You can retire earlier. You can live off part of your savings and part of your side hustle because your side hustle goes with you when you uh, retire. So I would start with, you know, first of all, finding something that you can enjoy and you can do for a long time. So, you know, it's got to be something that, you like and you wanna do it and it's not a drag, Otherwise, it's just it's just as bad as a job you don't like, right? Mm-hmm. It's just creating a side hustle you don't like. Now, you also also have to find something that people are willing to pay you for, obviously, or it's not going to be worth it. And that you can then ultimately make a profit at that they'll pay you at a rate that will cover your expenses more than that. And that could be a lot of things. I did personally, I did freelance writing back in the day when magazines were big. Then you know, magazines are kind of dying off these days, but they used to hire freelance writers, and I paid off my Mortgage by writing freelance articles at night, you know, after my family went to bed. And then that kind of morphed into blogging. So I've done that for almost, see, probably it's going on 13 years now. My son and I were referees, soccer referees for a while. That was his main job. And I kind of came along for the ride. So we did that over the course of time. And then I got into real estate. And that was, you know, you consider that either an investment or a side hustle, either one. But that's been pretty profitable as well. On the earn
0: side, you also discuss credit card rewards as a way to enjoy your life a little bit more and earn some more. Obviously, this is, can be a slippery slope with credit cards. You've got to make sure you're responsible with them. But tell us how you've done that with credit card rewards.
1: So I agree with you 100. You know we don't have any balances. We pay them off every month. We've never had any fees with our credit cards. But we have kind of a you know several you know five to seven main cards that we use, and we we go with cash back. I have tried travel hacking with points, but it's just it's too much effort for me at this point in my in my life, and I'm you know I'm retired, so I don't. I'd rather have the time than the effort I have to put into it. I don't need to save the money. But, you know, between bonuses and cash back and looking for wage, basically just charging everything you can with the right card where you can earn, you know, a minimum of 2% which is my lowest, but, you know, up to 5%. And then you get the bonuses, you then earn 20% in some cases. I made $4,000 last year, which is not bad, right? We had a lot of expenses, but my daughter's in college and her college happens to let us pay for tuition. With with a credit card that earns two percent cash back, and there's no fee for doing that, so why wouldn't we do it, right? So we had, a, yeah, we had, you know, an extra. Even on, in a, on a regular year, we're still probably going to earn you know fifteen hundred dollars to two thousand dollars just by you know using the right cards, buying things we'd normally buy.
0: And that four thousand dollars, that's tax free,
1: right? It is, yeah. It's a reward. It's not any sort of earnings. So yeah, it is tax free.
0: So we hit on earn a little bit there, obviously through your income, through your day job, you know, building your career, building your wealth, starting a side business that you feel passionate about, not just something that is just something to do. You want to feel passionate about it, You want to make sure people will actually pay you for it. And then the credit card rewards side of things, which is just a nice little perk for money you're spending anyway. So that's the earn side of things. So let's talk about save. So a lot of people consider that high income of what you're talking about as the barometer of being wealthy, but they don't really factor in the saving side of things, so why do you feel like saving is as is important a part of a wealth building process for you?
1: Well, because it, it really just boils down to the fact that you can spend it all no matter how much you make. I mean, that's that simple. We've seen you know, celebrities and athletes and all sorts of people who have made you know tens of millions of dollars go bankrupt because you can spend it all. I mean, even if you have a high income, it can all go away if you don't control yourself. So you have to be able to have some self-control and you have to save no matter what your income is. So that's why it's a vital part of the equation.
0: Did you guys have a barometer of a, a savings
1: percentage that you tried to hit? We didn't have a savings goal, per se. Our income was fairly high. So we we fully funded my 401k for every year that we were available to have to do it, every year that I had a 401k. And then we saved in addition to that, and over the course of 20 years, I went back and looked at our numbers and we tracked everything and Quicken so I could do this. Our savings was 36% of our gross income, over those 20 years that I looked at it. So, you know, it was, you know, by today's standards, 36% sounds low because, you know, people saving 50% or 70% of their uh, income. This is gross income too, by the way. It's not net income. So, you know, the 36% would be a lot higher if I was looking at net income. But, you know, it was, it was enough and it was a substantial amount because of our, our income was so high.
0: So you said you were uh, fully funding the 401k. Did you take advantage of Roth IRAs or HSAs, anything like that, too, while you were saving?
1: We did have an HSA through our company, yes. Yeah, so it was uh, it was a really nice deal because our company converted from uh, traditional medical insurance to a high deductible plan. And they said, we're going to put $4,000 every year into your HSA for you. Wow. So. And we don't spend that much. We were a pretty healthy family. So it just really racked up. I mean, it was a great, it was a great benefit for that company. I didn't do Roth. I I can't remember when the Roth IRA came around. So I didn't do it. I saved into a, just a regular taxable account with my excess, which then I, then I dipped into that fund when I bought my real estate. So it all worked out because it was pretty accessible.
0: Well, very cool. Well, that's a good segue to the I section here of investing. You know, you talked about real estate and utilizing like a brokerage account. What are the specific ways that you built wealth while you were continuing your life over the past, you know, couple of decades?
1: Yeah. So two main ways. One is we bought index funds early, often, as much as we could during the crash of, you know, 2008, nine, 10, you know, that range, you know, we bought, we, we plowed every extra dollar we could find into them. Like as it was, as the market was dropping, I mean, there were some nerve wracking days. I'm thinking, do I really believe this? Because this better work out because it, it would, I, I would, it would go down. I would you know throw in $15,000 and then it would go down big again the next day, and the next day, and then I'd throw in another 15, and it'd still go down, and it'd go down. I'm like, wow, I hope this is right. Now, obviously, you know, eight years later, it turned out to be really, you know, it worked out really well for us. So, index funds was the first thing. Second thing was uh, real estate investing. About that time, when the market was down and, you know, everything, everybody was. I was kinda of panicking, real estate was down too. I got into real estate investing and bought several units in Michigan. Really not at the bottom of the market, but kinda of like as the market was starting to come back up. So before the run up that we've seen in the past, you know, five to six years.
0: What was the first real estate investment that you snapped? Was that in the Grand Rapids area, like
1: you said? Yeah, so I lived in Grand Rapids, mm-hmm. and the very first one. So the first, the first one that I actually had a contract accepted on was sold out from under me. So imagine this: I'm like a, you know, I'm like a new investor. I do have a mentor, and he's taking me through all this. But I'm like, okay, we're going to buy this duplex. We put a bid on it, and like he calls me a week later and said, "Well, the the guy sold it to somebody else," mm. and I'm like well, how does that happen? I have a contract <laughs> contract on it. And and basically, the guy just wasn't very scrupulous. He just, you know, he just got a better offer somehow, and he sold it, and I was like, oh, man, this, is, this real estate stuff is crazy. Maybe I shouldn't do it. But we persevered, and so my first purchase was like a 1920s home in northern Grand Rapids, Michigan. It had been abandoned. It looked like, you know, something you'd see on a horror movie. I mean, it was just really, <laughs> it was bad. Like, you know, like the doors, the glass, The door was broken, and you know, there weren't birds flying around inside, but they probably had been at some point. And we, so we bought it. It was a four bedroom house, and it was strong, it was strong structurally, and it had an outbuilding that had had three bedrooms. So it was just, you know, two different units on the same property. And uh, so we bought it. The government owned it at that point in time, so we bought it from them and then we put in, I don't know, thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars into it. That was our plan. We'd always buy kind of a fixer upper and we would put a boatload of money into it and it would look awesome. Mm-hmm. And then we would, you know, rent it accordingly, much more than, than what it would have rented if we hadn't put the money into it, that was the very first one, and and then from there I got another one a few months later, and then another one maybe six or so seven months later, and some of these were buildings, so some of them had multiple units uh, within the building, and then we just did the same thing. We as as tenants would le- you know their re- the lease would come up, we would say we're going to remodel your apartment, uh, it's going to look like this, and I have new appliances, and new paint, and new flooring, and everything, but the rent is going to to go from $500 a month to $700 a month. Most of them at that point didn't stick around, but we really refurbished those places from kind of a lower, I don't know I call it like a C property, if you've ever heard people yep. talk about A, B, and C properties. Mm-hmm. So if like a C property, it was in a B location, but it was a C property the way it had been maintained, we turned it into a B plus property in a B location
0: those C properties that you were buying then what was like the typical price range for that just to give everybody an idea
1: well the, the good thing is it's in Grand Rapids Michigan right mm-hmm. so the prices are very affordable so we would buy I bought one of my properties the one I like the best it has two buildings and they each have four units so eight units total in a shared parking lot and we bought it for like $250,000 or something mm-hmm. like that and then put another you know, $50,000 in or maybe a little more than that so that's really 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 affordable because a is in grand rapids and b it was kind of at the low point of the real estate market so those two things helped
0: what time of year was this this was in early
1: 2000s or is this around the yeah. away, away time frame no we bought like in 2012 2012 okay thank yeah you. 13 like in that range yeah so, so like then, i said it just it just was coming out of the you know it was still people were still kind of shell-shocked but mm-hmm. it wasn't as bad it wasn't like right in the middle of everything
0: so around 250 in 2012, and then where would something like that be nowadays? I mean, obviously there's been an so, increase in the yeah, a
1: decrease in that. Yeah, I had all of them priced out because my management company also sells real estate, so they're always asking people, does anybody want to sell you know their properties? And then they've gone up by about 50%. And that was about a year or two ago. So they're probably even more than that because they also, in addition, my management company will send me offers and say, Hey, there's this guy's selling and the price. I'm like, are you crazy? I don't know what's going on there, but he's, he's like, well, this, this property will be gone in two days if you don't buy it. And I'm like, there's no way I, I, I don't, I couldn't get the return I wanted out of it. But, you know, real estate properties, values have gone up dramatically there and, you know, a lot of, across the country, a lot of cities. When you bought
0: this building for 250, do you like to buy in cash? I bought in cash.
1: Yeah. Nice. So I don't like debt. Uh, you know, we paid off our mortgage. I mentioned that earlier and we paid off our credit card. We don't, we haven't had any debt for almost 25 years now, pretty much our entire marriage. So yeah, I bought in cash and I know you can earn a higher return, you know, by leveraging these, but I don't, I don't want to really deal with that. I feel it's just, I guess, personal preference for me. What about living debt-free makes you happy? Just the, I mean, there's no stress. I mean, you're free. You're totally free from anybody. You don't have to, to worry about the bank. I mean, you can really do a lot, with your finances when you don't have a mortgage. Imagine that. That's the, the biggest thing that most people spend money on is their mortgage. Imagine, if, for people listening out there, if that was taken out of your budget and you didn't have to pay for it, imagine the opportunities you would have to, you know, save and to give and to, you know, do awesome things with the money that would be remaining. It's just, you know, it's that much better. So, we we always bought a house. We started buying a house. I mean, and these are very nice houses, too. I'm not, like, saying we lived in a shack. Or anything by any stretch. We <laughs> lived in nice homes that were, you know, twenty five hundred square feet. They're, you know, they're big. And most people would say that they were big. They were nice and new in most cases. But we lived in low cost markets, and we bought houses that were you know, substantially below what our income said we could buy. And then we paid the first one off, You know, it took us a few years, I worked at that side hustle I talked about in order to make it happen. And then once we paid that first one off, we just, when we moved, we would roll over all the money from that one to the next one and roll over the money from that one to the next one and on and on. And we just never had a mortgage from there on out.
0: that first property when you bought it in cash, how long did it take you to save up that amount of money? Was it a lot easier because you guys didn't
1: have a mortgage at that point? So what had happened at that point, because we didn't have a mortgage and we were making our income had grown and grown and grown by that time through the years, we had a big cushion. So we were accumulating cash. So the first, so I ended up buying three properties with a total of 14 different units on them. The first two, I think I bought for or at least the first one and a half, let's say, I bought with cash that I just had available. So by basically my emergency fund had just ballooned to a place that I was like, okay, I knew I was going to buy real estate at some point, so I'm just going to let it accumulate and I'm going to pay cash. For the second, You know, for the last one and maybe the half, I did sell some index funds in order to fund part of the purchases of those.
0: And then you said your income had grown substantially to that point. Was your wife also working at the same time? Uh,
1: No, she was not. So she was, when we got married, she was an audiologist. So she tested hearing and, you know, was working in a doctor's office. But when we had kids, she decided to stay home. And our kids were homeschooled, you know, all during their school career. So all the way from kindergarten to high school. So she stayed home doing that. And I, you know, was working on my career.
0: Obviously, with the finances, it sounds like based on you having a blog and, and purchasing Rockstar Fight, it's you're into the finances and, and, and talking about I'm into it, it yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I, I am. How does your wife fall on that side of the fence? Is she into it as much as you are? No, she-
1: <laughs> no she's not. No, she'd be like, you know, I you tell her that they're like, oh, I'm going to go to this, this thing called FinCon and I'm going to meet all these people that write about money online. It's going to be great. And she's like, you know, rolling her eyes going, okay, whatever, you know, it's just like... <laughs> She's just thinking like you're meeting people on the internet and you're going to go see them in person. That sounds kind of strange, but okay if you think it's a good idea.
0: That's great. Well, I mean, obviously she's enjoyed the outcomes of your interest in money, right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> and you have a couple kids, you said. Now they're they're in we college. Do. Is that right?
1: So one of them is in college. I mean, she's studying criminal justice and wants to work for. In some, uh, you know, anti-terrorism capacity. Hmm. So we'll see what happens to her. And then my son is uh, still at home. He's working and he's, you know, trying to decide what he wants to do with his life while he's still working here, you know, at the same time.
0: Have you spent some time with them as they grew up, trying to introduce them to
1: money and finances and, and smart, oh,
0: yes. smart ways of doing? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it kind of depends on what you talk to them about, based on what they're able to handle. So, you know, at the beginning when they were getting allowances, you talk about you know you know saving some and spending some and giving some, and then as they get older, you have you know more and more you know conversations that are deeper about you know what how money works and like. like. Like this year, we just got done doing our taxes, you know, and we are still, we we have a CPA that does our taxes and they, the CPA does the um, kids taxes too, but they get more involved every year. They see, you know, what is, is involved with even just getting everything assembled to send to the CPA for your taxes and, you know, how much you get back and how it kind of works and should you get any money back and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, we have those conversations, you know, all along the way. And they obviously know that I write about money. So, but, you know, there's also like the dad factor, like, oh, dad, you know, there's that sort (laughs) of, you know. So, you know, they all have to, they're gonna have to make their own decisions. You know, the biggest concern that I have, and my wife and I have talked about this, is, you know our kids have never seen us struggle financially and they've never had to live through financial struggle like i did when i was a kid and like my wife did when she was a kid you know we lived through that because our parents were in certain situations where you know there were there were rough times and you know the the character that you have and the way you manage money as a result of that is different than if you grow up in a environment where there's never that issue there's never a problem you're you know you're well off you're living in a nice house in a nice neighborhood you're taking trips you know around the world in different places so you know we, we wonder how that will impact our kids and you don't you don't know until you know they live their lives so but it's something that we continually talk about and we talk about with them about you know managing money and being responsible with what they have
0: you had grown up in a an environment where money wasn't abundant, but that Thanks. made you want to, you know, give your family and yourself, you know, a rich life. Yes. So So now you have children that have grown up with a lot and your struggle is how do we not make this a cycle, right? How do we, how do we not right. go back, right? What are some of those conversations, I guess, that you're having to keep that uh, knowledge going? And I know you get the dad eye roll sometimes, but that's a very interesting topic, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Most of it centers around spending at this point in time, because we have lived in a environment where we've kind of been in abundance. Our kids buy a lot of stuff. My son is a collector of shoes, Jordan's and the LeBron's and the, you know, this and that. And, you know, that's I guess that's a thing nowadays the guys (laughs) do they collect Basketball shoes, so he spends a lot of money on those. My daughter has earned a lot because we've given her financial incentives to do that. So she's made the right choices there. She's made the right choices about college and where to go and how much to spend and all that. But she likes to buy nice things too. So a lot of our conversations now center around spending, and that you know that there's going to be a day when the spending is going to have to be ratcheted back because you're going to be on your own. You're going to be on a fixed income of some sort, and you're going to have to manage a lot more. Business bills than you're managing now Mm -hmm. so they're at the point where they're being transitioned into the fact that like oh somebody pays for us to live here (laughs) And, and there's like heat there's a the heat in the house that somebody has to pay for and the lights and and the food in the refrigerator i have to actually go get that and give people money for that you know and stuff just stuff like that that's been taken for granted because it's always been there mm-hmm. so that's kind of how we're transitioning now and then you know continue to work with them on here's how much you spend here's how much you earn and then of that you want to save a portion of it and then you know spend the rest of it but you got to control your spending you just can't spend first and then whatever's left save or you'll never get to saving.
0: That's good. I remember being 22 and getting my first house and then starting to get those bills, the electric bill, the water bill, the heat bill. Yeah, like, Whoa, what is this saying? I, want, yeah. I have to pay this too? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, cool. That's great. Uh, best of luck with that. Those continued conversations with your family, yeah, for sure. Too. I wanted to take a, just a quick second to talk about financial independence. Obviously, this is a big term that you hear a lot. And you know, this is essentially when you've got enough money to not have to work at a day job all day long or, or have, you know, what do they say? 25 times your annual expenses in order to, you know, live your life and then enjoy yourself. So, so when, when did you hit that point throughout this journey where you said, Hey, I'm good working at my career. I'm all done with that. I want to try this financial independence thing.
1: Yeah. So I retired. So the answer to when I jumped out of the, out of the, uh, career is at 52 in, in 2016, but the answer to when I became financially independent is I'd probably have to go back and look, but probably sometime in my 40s, probably my early, early 40s. But back then, you know, there weren't the conversations about being financially independent that there are today. There wasn't, you know, Mr. Money Mustache wasn't around. And the people, you know, that's, that line of thinking was, even the 4% rule was not as, nearly as prominent. In fact, I don't even know when the 4% rule came around, but it's been, you know, the past few years it's been talked about way more than, you know, back when I was blogging in the in the mid, you know, 2000s, like 2005, 6, 7. There was there were no, you know, conversations about the four percent rule. Mm-hmm. And no one was retiring, you know, in their twenties, thirties, forties or whatever. So I was in my day, if somebody retired at sixty, that was early retirement. Mm-hmm. And that's just was you know, that's based on the people that went before me. So that was kind of my goal. And eventually one day I just kind of woke up and put two and two together and said, I'm financially independent now. I've been for a long time. I just I'm gonna retire. I live in Colorado. It's great to live here. I'm gonna get out and and, you know, enjoy my life while I still can.
0: Do you think if this conversation was as prevalent as it is today, that you would have retired earlier than you
1: did? Yes, I think <laughs> I would have. Yes. And that's, I think, the number one issue. You know, people have, I get people writing me, you know, regularly, maybe once every few weeks or so. I'll get somebody send me an email going, I've got $5 million and I don't know if I have enough to retire. You know, can you help <laughs> me? I'm like, Dude, you have enough to retire. Believe me, (laughs) unless it's like all locked up in a you know somewhere where you can't get to it, or you know you live on a Caribbean island that you have to maintain yourself, you know with any sort of reasonable expenses, you have more than enough to retire right now. But people are you know they're locked into you know should I do it? I don't know. So that's the number one I would say mistake that people make, and is the number one mistake I made is waiting too long. I mean, I waited too long, so I would have I would definitely if I had to do it all over again have retired earlier.
0: Well, you're probably inspired by a lot of the conversations that are happening on Rockstar Finance. So is that a big, yes. is that a
1: reason that you wanted
0: to buy that site?
1: Well, for me, you know, you have to find something to do. The this whole retirement conversation, while it's been shifting from, you know, retire 65 to retire, you know, much earlier than that, it's also been shifting from, You know, it used to be when you retired, you either played golf or you bowled or you whatever. (laughs) You kind of like sailed into the sunset and that was it. You know, now it's more like, well, what do you want to do? And what you want to do could be a business of your own, it could be traveling, it could be, you know, any number of things. And for me, and you have to have something in there anyway to keep you sharp or else, you know, if you don't use it, you kind of lose it. So rockstar finance for me was kind of filled a couple different niches. It kept me, um, it's exciting to work on a business like that. It keeps me sharp. I had an abundance. I was starting to pile up cash again because, You know, the the real estate market is just so crazy. I don't think I'll probably buy any more real estate unless something happens dramatically with the prices. So I needed something to, I had all this cash that was earning like 1%. You know, that's about all you can get on your cash these days. So I was like, okay, I want to take this money that's earning 1% and I want to earn, you know, 20% or 40% 40% or 50% on. And so a business is one way you can do that and Rockstar Finance was the reason you know that's the, one of the reasons I bought Rockstar Finance is because it also has a good return on it. Excellent and you're passionate about the topic as well. Obviously. I am. Yeah, so I'm already in the niche. I like it. I know a lot of people. It helped it helps me, in addition to make money, helps me help a lot of people that deserve it and are having a tough time finding the traffic that they need for their site. So it has a lot of benefits.
0: Excellent. Well, it's an incredible website. If you guys do not know about what Rockstar Finance is, check it out. I'll definitely put it in the show notes. John, before we conclude, you've had a lot of success in your career and in your post-career and this financial independence lifestyle you're living. Surely there was some mistakes along the way. What's one piece of financial advice that you'd give yourself as you were going through this this life so far?
1: Yeah, so if I had to do it all over again, I would start saving sooner. It took me... By the time I got out of graduate school, I was twenty-four, and it took me until I met my wife and we got married, which was a few years after that, until we started really saving aggressively. So I lost, you know, five years, let's say, of saving, which, you know, those five years, you know, if you took what I had now and tacked on five more years of compounding would be worth a lot of money. So that was my biggest mistake was just I should have started saving, you know, from the get go.
0: As you were going through this financial independence path right here, or reaching where you are, was there a book that kind of influenced you that said, hey, this is yeah. really going to amp things up for me?
1: Yeah, so The Millionaire Next Door, when it came out, I was kind of in the process of you know, figuring it all out, read it, and basically said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to control my expenses, I'm going to live within my means, and I'm going to be The Millionaire Next Door. So it was by far the one book that's influenced me financially more than any other. It's a great
0: mindset shift, or if people are thinking rich means something in one way, this is a book will help you to understand that that myth is, is a myth. Yes. <laughs> Very cool. Well, you're the millionaire next door. I love it. <laughs> Very cool. Where's the best place people can follow you and learn more about the uh, ESI way of life?
1: Yeah, well, my two websites are esi.money.com is one, and then rockstarfinance.com is the other. And uh, as far as social media, I spend most of my time on Twitter at money blog. So I. Post there frequently, and I'm around quite often.
0: Excellent. Yeah, he's got some great articles, everybody. So uh, check him out. He's been freelance writing forever, and now he's been blogging forever. So that's great, man. (laughs) Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today, John. I really appreciate you jumping in and having some conversations about this.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Here are some of the main takeaways that stuck with me most from my conversation with John. Number one grow your career and your income. Saving is important. Investing is important. But I do not think that I spend nearly enough time discussing how growing our careers can be one of the best ways to build our wealth. We can all increase our salaries and receive promotions by focusing on exceeding expectations and being likable. Great points by John. It seems simple, but if we focus ourselves in those areas, it can really make a big difference. And if you're at a company that's like a toxic environment and and you don't really see an opportunity to grow there, take a look around and find somewhere new to go. You are in control of your career. Number two, trade income for time freedom. John mentioned that he got to a point in his career where he built up enough of a cushion of cash that he was able to take on a more convenient and lower-paying job that allowed him to have more time with his family. This is right up my alley. When you have debt freedom or a large emergency fund or financial independence in general, these things can allow you to make these important moves. And time freedom, just the concept of having time freedom, is so important for our family lives and for our marriages, really. So love that one. Number three, debt-free real estate can work. It works. (laughs) John said he's been debt-free for 25 years, and he purchased all of his rentals with cash. He's experienced less stress, less worry, and more control. I'm sure it took him a lot more time to save up for those properties instead of getting a mortgage, but in the end, it sounds worth it to me. Nicole and I are shooting for our first rental by the end of the year, and we're trying to do the cash route as well. We'll see how it goes. It might be December of 2019. We'll see how much we can earn and save (laughs) to get there. We'll get there when we get there. It's all good. So let's recap those takeaways. Number one, grow your career and your income. Number two, trade income for time freedom where you've got that, you know, that cushion. And number three, debt-free real estate works. I am so thankful to have this platform, this podcast. I'm privileged to learn really from from some of the most successful people out there. It sure helps give me motivation. It boosts my motivation level when the people that we're speaking to on the show are family focused folks that I can relate to. John absolutely crushed the wealth building game for his family. Now I'm inspired to do the same. As a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabit for editing today's show and for Weird Digital Marketing for their support on Instagram and YouTube, and Mandy Burt for her stellar writing on our blog. Thank you all so much for your partnership. It's a pleasure working with you. Before we go for the day, I want to encourage you to send in any questions you have via voicemail to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. My goal with the show is to support as many people as possible with their family, financial journey, your real life, real people, real concern questions. They're really what makes the show great. So please send them in. And I can help you. And then through that process, we're helping other people too. So marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. I'll do my best to tackle as many as I can this year and help out as many people as possible. So when you leave that voicemail, try to keep it to 90 seconds or less. That is the capacity of the voicemail system as well as it's just good to be a little brief if you can. Uh, It helps for a good podcast. Introduce yourself, provide as much financial information as possible, and you can definitely remain anonymous if you're concerned about that. You can say like Chris from Wisconsin or Jen from Florida or AJ from Tennessee. That's uh, a good way to stay anonymous. So marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. I hope to hear from you so that we can help you and others. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Thomas J. Stanley. Wealth is more often the result of a lifestyle of hard work, perseverance, planning, and most of all, self-discipline. Best of luck becoming the multi-millionaire next door, everyone. Carpe diem!